you again for the, the beauty of the world around us and everything that you have given us responsibility for. And we pray now that we would have hearts that are open to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, give us compassionate hearts and gracious hearts. Amen. Great to be here. Um, I was watching the news last night because I was hoping that that, uh, that new NASA space rocket would finally launch, launch, and it didn't. I don't know if you were following the news at all. They've had several goes, and now they've got to wait a couple of weeks for the weather and everything to be aligned properly. And it's, uh, it marks NASA going back to, to serious you know, space exploration with a view to sending, eventually, I gather, sending people to the moon. And uh, I'll go if you would like me to. I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer. Um, but it's amazing to think that Apollo 17 set off in 1972, so I think that's exactly 50 years ago, isn't it? Um, and I think it was then, for the first time, there's a picture of our planet, that we, you know, we humans were able to see our planet from, from kind of further away than we were used to seeing it. Um, we could see the continents and the oceans and the weather systems, and for some people, uh, maybe for generations, several generations of people, that, that image of our world kind of summed up a changed attitude to, to our world and creation. Um, because you could no longer, you, you would no longer see the planet as a kind of vast fire of, of stuff that could be tapped at will, a resource, if you like, that was at our disposal. But rather, um, we began to realize how small and yet perfectly balanced and fragile our home really is. And Correspondingly, we became more and more anxious about what we're doing to this lonely globe. And I think that the anxiety over the decades, so exactly 50 years on, the news feeds are full of discussions about sustainability and species extinction and waste and pollution and, of course, climate change, which kind of in many ways sums the whole thing up or wraps the whole thing up. And, but it should be said that within, within the gloom that we're used to seeing on the television, there are chinks of good news. This week saw the opening of the, the largest, the largest um, wind farm, I think, ever, um, anywhere in the world that was opened off the UK coast. And apparently, um, solar panels are, as it were, going through the roof, which is an unfortunate thing to imagine, I know. But it's great that more and more people are getting their solar panels installed. So how do you feel about these issues? Are you worried? Are you distracted about it? Is it just not really on your radar? Are you resigned to the state of the human condition? Are you apathetic, optimistic, skeptical? Are you a bit of a climate change skeptic? Well, this is, um, this is a, a talk that's kind of in two parts. And it's coming from a Christian perspective, as, as I hope you'd expect. And the first part is um, going to be a, a kind of quick overview of, as it were, the future of a Christian perspective. And because I think it's important to have a sense of where Christians have thought history is flowing in terms of creation and what is going to happen to this world. Because where we think God's world is going, where it's going to end up, that, that of course influences what we would do about it now in the time that we've been allotted. And we can all do things in our time. So the future of the world, the first part, the second part, while we wait, what is our part? So the future of the world, part one. 
Um, Christians have approached that question in two kind of broad ways, I think, in maybe in the last hundred years or so. Um, the first is, um, and these are, you know, this is quite, um, quite orthodox, they've seen a kind of dualism of humans and nature, uh, where they've seen human beings as being distinct from nature in the sense that eventually this creation as we, as we know it is going to be wiped away and there's going to be something entirely new put in its place. Um, but there's also another approach, which is maybe a more recent one, but it's gathered a lot of um, traction, as they say, which is the view that creation isn't going to be wiped away, there isn't going to be a new creation, but there's going to be a re renewed creation. And I feel that both of these views actually have strengths and weaknesses. So the first one, this view that um, humans and nature are in some ways distinct, a sort of dualism. And these are broad brush strokes. You know, I, I'm, I'm painting something which is quite kind of straightforward here. This is, in, in reality, people have written many PhDs on the, this kind of subject. Um, but it focus on, focuses really, I suppose, on human pride and sin leading to God's judgment, a consequent need of salvation from that judgment through Jesus, who died for us on the cross and he rose again. So that's orthodox Christianity in many ways. And you could say, though, that there's a strong emphasis in this dualism view, strong emphasis on the, the first of the two great commandments. So there's a strong emphasis on, our, on loving the Lord our God with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our failure to live up to that commandment. So saving souls in, in, as a result of that failure and getting into heaven and being with Jesus is kind of what it's all about here. That's the goal. And heaven is completely disconnected from this world because it's beyond what we know of as space and time. And all of this, all of this will be destroyed at the end of time when Jesus returns to judge sin and evil and put things right. Um, and Christians who follow that line believe that creation will be completely replaced. And they point out, to back up the view, that the scriptures often describe Christians and have all the way through as foreigners and exiles in this world, foreigners and strangers on the earth, whose citizenship is in heaven. We belong somewhere different, not here. This world, in the end, isn't our home. And as I say, that's that's fairly orthodox. There's nothing, I hope, there's nothing heretical that you're perceiving in what I'm saying here. But the trouble is, there's a negative side to that view, isn't there, which um, you're possibly aware of, which is that you can easily see how it can lead to an ugly disregard to creation. Because if this world is going to be swept away, then we, we can subjugate nature for our own ends and have an easy conscience, perhaps. Christians, I would say, have been guilty of sidelining creation care, or at least giving it second place. Second place to the imperative to save souls. And since the salvation of souls is all important, they've, in effect, said that environmentalism isn't so important. And that, of course, has fed the perception that there is this dualism between humanity and the rest of creation. But the thing is, the Bible really, if you read the Bible carefully, it doesn't seem to agree with that view. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think, 
don't agree with that view. Because right at the beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis 1, creation, as, as it's portrayed in Eden, brings God pleasure and causes humans to praise him for what he's created. God says that it's very good. And any destruction of creation arguably stops us giving that honor to God, and it's an insult to the God who made it. And the reality is that we're not here to exploit creation, or to worship it, worship it I should say, but we're here to cherish what God, and we are his stewards over it. And when we conserve what God made and said was very good, that's one way that we can worship God. And then looking at the New Testament and, and Jesus, when you think of um, Jesus' life, you know, he could have decided to lead the life of the intellectual debate and sat around in the temple courts with the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, distant somehow from the creative world. But he did just the opposite, didn't he? he? He tended to avoid those places, even though he did go in them sometimes. He was really in, embedded in the natural world. And his first miracle in John's Gospel is recorded as in, involving turning water into wine. That's a fairly physical thing, down-to-earth physical thing. And it's so cool. If I could do that, I would be very rich. And is being raised as a physical human being rather than some kind of spiritual upgrade on humanity, doesn't that show that God stands by our physical world, the world that he created? So I said there were strengths and weaknesses. There, were strength, there are strengths to the, this view of seeing, seeing creation being completely made new, a new creation coming along, but there are weaknesses because it can lead to this wrong disregard or relative disregard for, for the world around us and the world that we've been given stewardship over. But the second view, which is that creation is going to be renewed, um, so that isn't a new creation, but it's this renewed creation. Um, that sees not so much a new heaven and a new earth, but not two different places, but a restored creation. And if you can remember three years ago, some of us were here three years ago before the pandemic, we had um, the Creation Tide Festival, and Dave Bookless, the theologian, came along and, and spoke to us. And he, he sort of promoted this view very, very effectively, and he espouses this view, and he's written about it, the idea that creation is going to be restored and renewed. And, uh, okay, so I'll talk a bit more about that, but now it's time for our reading. We're getting close to the reading. You're probably thinking, this is an evangelical, we had a reading yet. Finally, we've got to, do, got to it, and it's taken from the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, it's a good time to hear it now, because it does describe, seems to describe a redeemed heaven and earth, where God is living with his people. The king is physically with us, and we are with the king. So, from Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street in the city of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's, that's just a wonderful picture, isn't it? And yet, it's kind of recognizable to us because it's a bit like our own creation. It has things in it that we recognize, and yet it's the completion and perfection of that. There's a city. We recognize cities, don't we? There's a large throng of people. There's a tree of life. I'm so, so pleased that there are trees. There's fruit on the tree, and there's a river. So it's a kind of garden city. And in this city, humans are living in harmony with each other and their environment. And these things, of course, have symbolic meaning. And we're not going to be delving into the symbolic meaning of each of these things on this occasion. But I, all I would say is, is that, that that symbolic meaning works because they have a physical meaning that we recognize as well. So we can kind of relate to what the symbolism may or may not be. There is a fulfillment and renewal of God's original purposes here that we saw right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And so this isn't a, a kind of eternal, boring, dualistic kind of fluffiness, if you like. There's no floating. There's no playing harps, harpists floating around. Nothing wrong with harps. I mean, really useful instrument in the symphony orchestra. Really good in Celtic music. But it's a, it's a deeply physical existence where God is universally recognized and praised for who he is. And what a contrast to the world as it is now, groaning and waiting and yearning for the glory that is to be revealed. And as Christians, we've been forgiven on the cross and given new life with God. But our bodies, they still experience decay, don't they? Have you noticed our bodies experience decay? And when Jesus returns... Our bodies will be redeemed. And the great thing is that we see evidence of what that looks like in the New Testament, as I was saying a few minutes ago, in the accounts of the risen Jesus, who is, has a resurrection body and yet is so physical, he cooks and eats fish. Jesus presents a new immortal resurrection body, yet he's the same person. And similarly, this decaying world will be transformed somehow, the same world, not totally new, but renewed. So that's, that's a kind of summary of that, that other view of the renewed world um, in a nutshell. And it does seem to flow in many passages in, in Revelation. The belief that God won't end it all and wipe it away in some act of judgment, but will renew it. But again, strengths and weaknesses. There are weaknesses in this view, or there are dangers, I should say. There are dangers. And the danger in going with this renewed creation is that you can end up thinking that there's a kind of natural evolution going on where eventually, somehow, automatically, we will have a better and greener version of what we have now. And you, don't, and you can take away the Bible's insistence that Jesus is to be at the center of it all. That we'll be there to serve him. Remember the reading just now. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Basically, if you're tempted to imagine a redeemed world without Jesus at the center, one that exists kind of for you, for your benefit, rather than for his glory, then you're going astray and you're not thinking in line with the Bible. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to confuse creation however beautiful and amazing it is, with the creator himself. 
when actually the creator himself is the source of beauty, is, if you like, the embodiment of all beauty, and it's flowing from him that we get all this. But we can end up worshipping this and forgetting him. So both views have strengths and weaknesses about where we're going. The key thing, I would say, is to remember when it comes to the future of the world is that we will be with God. We'll be with God. Jesus will have returned. His presence is the main thing. And our being forgiven by God with him and being able to come into his presence, that's the main thing. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. So while we wait, while we wait for that time, however it comes about, when we see his face right up close, what do we do while we wait? Of course, the non-Christian world is responding, isn't it? We all know this. There's a whole spectrum of responses from the unwavering optimists. Those are the people who think that we can kind of, through ingenuity, through human invention, which they have infinite faith in, we can somehow think ourselves out of the problem of climate change and so on. But then you get the polar opposites who think we're doomed. Captain Mannering, those of you who remember um, Dad's Army. Because humans are not at heart, humans are at heart fatally greedy and selfish. In the end, human, human nature is going to bring it all down. It's only a matter of time. And of course, the events this year, the invasion of Ukraine, all the horrible stuff that's going on there, but also the, the results of that in terms of potential famine might seem to emphasize or reinforce that view. But then there's another secular response to, to the climate crisis and the crisis of, of um, extinction and so on, and which is the most radical, and that's seen with the organizations like Insulate Britain or Extinction Rebellion. And then the current protest groups, um, Just Stop Oil, who've been in the press in the last few weeks. And I only read a couple of days ago about a kind of a branch of um, Extinction Rebellion called Animal, Animal Rebellion, who um, are trying to, they're planning to stop us buying dairy products in the city. And I think um, they, they say we have to act radically to stand any chance of saving the earth and possibly the human species. And they are just trying to drum that into people, to get people to listen for once. And maybe, maybe as Christians, we, on some level, respect what they're doing, but we don't necessarily agree with their methodology. What should we as Christians do as we wait for the new or renewed creation? Well, Christians are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as I was saying earlier, but also we are to love our neighbor. And we may as Christians um, be looking forward to the river of the water of life. Well, I hope we are. I hope you're all looking forward to that and yearning for it, that river which is as clear as crystal. But we can and should start now, um, right now, living for our neighbors. And a bright future mustn't lead to complacency. The command to love your neighbor isn't a kind of one-off thing or a kind of optional thing in the Bible, but it's a repeated thing throughout the Bible. It's a kind of golden thread. It's expressed in myriad ways, and its scope is, is truly radical. It, in a world facing climate crisis, love for your neighbor surely moves us to action, or should do. And, uh, you know, climate change is already causing massive displacement, 
and all sorts of you know, suffering and financial ruin and death around the world, and that will only increase. Love for neighbor cannot stand idly by. We need to look at ourselves hard. Even a selective attitude towards climate change, which I think we're all guilty of to some extent, can represent it for God's creation and therefore God himself, but also for our neighbor. Are we disobeying in some way the second great commandment to love our neighbor? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that parable, Luke chapter 10, really famous, one of the, the few bits of the New Testament that people outside the church have always heard of. And in that, of course, a lawyer seeks to test Jesus and to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus about the scope of loving your neighbor. Just who is my neighbor, he asks. Well, if you want to play, place limits on the command to love your neighbor, if you claim it only applies to, to the people, say, you're close to, or your family, or your peer group, your friends, then maybe you're acting like that lawyer. Um, we stand potentially contempt, condemned, not only by our own Christian standards, but by those of the secular world, I would say at times, in our attitude to neighbor. And I include myself in this. I, you know, I'm putting my hand up. Because on the one hand, we, we might give money to, say, to Tear Fund, who say that their vision is to help communities overcome the worst effects of poverty and disaster. Give them money on the one hand, but on the other hand, we continue to live in this, the same life of consumption as before, which through our carbon footprint and all the rest, our use of single-use plastics, whatever it is, is contributing to the very environmental mess that Tear Fund is addressing. Just who is my neighbor, we might ask. Well, you know, I would say that our neighbor is the flooded villager in Pakistan, as much as your friend in your street. Think about your compost heap. Well, is it to save the world? Do you have a compost heap to save the world? Well, that would be arrogant and deluded, I would guess, unless it's a pretty large compost heap. Is it to worship Mother Earth? That would be idolatry. I hope none of you worship your compost heap. But if your compost heap and the other things that you make or do to conserve creation is there for the sake of God who loves his creation and is also an act of love for other humans so that the land they live in isn't being choked by your single-use plastic or your, your waste or whatever it is. I know you don't put single-use plastic in compost heaps. Okay. But then you're doing something that helps your neighbor. That's the point. The compost heap or the decision to avoid the single-use plastic or to carbon offset or not to fly or to, to walk or to cycle, your energy usage, all of those things will have a positive impact on your neighbor's world and also expresses an act of love for both God and neighbor. So we could extend this principle, couldn't we, to more organized action. We are a very able group of people here at Redland Church. So we could lobby governments and organizations and corporations to take action on climate change. We could speak up for the sake of the poor and the vulnerable around the world. It's complex, and we won't always agree on the process, but that doesn't justify inaction. So just to finish, whether you go for the creation wiped away and replaced view or the idea that creation is renewed, 
both interpretations still involve, eventually, radical shift or discontinuity as we get to the time between this present evil age and the age to come. And whether the world is renewed or replaced, God alone brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And those words that we read today from Revelation, they're a reminder, aren't they, that the place we're heading to will have God at the center. God will be at the center. Jesus will be walking the streets. Maybe we'll get to eat fish with him. I know I'm slightly obsessed with eating fish. I just think it's so cool. Fish that won't be under the threat of overfishing or extinction. We will see his face. That's what we long for. And we get a glimpse of it in the here and now, especially, especially when we really believe and act on that belief that the flooded villager in Pakistan is our neighbor. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, it can sometimes seem overwhelming. We, we acknowledge that there is great beauty in this world, and we've, we've all learned to appreciate that in different ways. We've all been on, on our travels. We've seen it in our own backyards, the beauty, the beauty of seasons and variety. And yet when we, when we look at the mess, the world, the floods, the drought, the extremes, the fires, the misery that this is causing, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed, to feel helpless, to somehow feel that nothing we do is going to make any difference. Will you understand and rid us of that view that we can't do anything? But also, Jesus, will you reassure us that we are not personally carrying your world on our shoulders? that you never expected that. And end of this, for us who believe in you, trust you and follow you, and believe in your, your death on the cross and your resurrection, that the goal for us is to be with you when there will be that wonderful city, that garden city that we will be able to be in. So give us hope for the present and hope for the future. Amen.